0: This pastor is going to want to hear that recording, so we got to make sure we get it. Hey. May I use this this one? Absolutely. All right. Yes, indeed. I don't doubt that Pastor Drew will be making sure. I didn't screw things up. <laughs> no, thank you all uh, for having us this morning. Thank you, Pastor Doug, for your hospitality. Um, it's always wonderful, one of the best Best things that we get to do is go around and meet new brothers and sisters in Christ that are new to us. We didn't even know we had, but and it's a reminder that the church is worldwide all peoples, tribes, languages, nations, and folks that we will get to meet one day in the kingdom and be with them. And it's just wonderful to see what the Lord has done and what He continues to do in the world. Um, But as Pastor Doug mentioned, I did want to talk this morning about Exodus 1, uh, verses 1 through 7. So if you would, in your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn there. Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7, and I'll read those verses for us, and then I'll ask uh, if you would pray with me after we do that, Uh, beginning at verse 1. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were seventy souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we come before you this morning, and we pray that you would bless this time that we have to spend in your word. We pray that you would be here among us, and that you would work among our hearts and our minds, and that you would show us the truth from your word. And open us up to be receptive to that truth. That we might grow in grace and in knowledge of you and of your Son. That we might be brought to more maturity in the faith, each of us. So that we can be more useful servants for you. And Lord, so that we can grow up in a manner that is pleasing to you. Lord, we know that this side... Of your kingdom, we will always disappoint. The things that we do will never be good enough, and we are still growing. But Lord, we know that you are faithful, and you will continue to grow us. And we know that you are faithful, and you will keep us. And so we thank you for those great promises that you've given to us. And we do pray, Lord, that you would help us see those promises see indeed your providence in these verses, in the way that it still works out today, or that you work out your providence, your purposes, and your plans for your people even now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as we look at these verses, and I promise we're not going to do this for every single word because we'll be here a long time, but the first word there at Exodus 1, 1 is Now. And that's an important word, so I do want to stop there and discuss it, because different translations have it as now or and, but the point is that there's a continuation. Right? Exodus is not a standalone book; it comes after what? Genesis, the first book. And I always say that I am so glad and so thankful for the book of Exodus. Because if we leave off at the book of Genesis, as we'll see, it's kind of depressing. Let's take a quick overview, and we'll see what we mean. And and I do mean a quick overview of all of Genesis, uh, so that we can see what we mean. Because we know, and we can think back to how Genesis begins, right? Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, what? Created the heavens and the earth, yes? We know that. And so, the wonderful thing about that beginning is that it presupposes what? The existence of God. God is already there from the very beginning. And then we see His activity immediately. In the beginning, God who's already there creates. And everything that He creates, we're told after every single day of His creation, it's what? Good. God saw all that He made and it was good. Good. And it was good and it was good. And finally we get to day six and he makes male and female, man and woman. And what do we read? It was very good. It's very good. A wonderful creation, a wonderful work that a wonderful, glorious and holy God has accomplished in six days. And on the seventh he rests. And everything seems wonderful and peaceful. And Adam and Eve are there and they're in the garden and everything is perfect for them. And God has provided to them everything. And he's kept all the bad things away. And he's provided them protection and all that they need to live. And what a wonderful opening to the story. The story of creation. The truth of the world. But we know it doesn't stop there, does it? Eventually chapter 3 comes. and chapter 3 tells, of course, about serpent coming into the garden. And he tempts Eve. And through his temptation, she disobeys God. She sins. She eats from the tree that she was not to eat from. And then, what? She gives to her husband also, and he ate from the tree. And once they eat from the tree, sin comes into the world. And death through sin... And all of the things that Pastor Doug and I were talking about this morning that we as Christians go through in this world, all of those things came into the world. Those challenges and those struggles and those heartbreaks and those sorrows. Everything that we look around and we see today comes into the world through man's sin. And God's beautiful creation, His perfect creation, that which was very good is now marred by that sin And as we go through the rest of the book of Genesis, particularly we look at verses 3 to 11, and we see just how far and how quickly everything falls. Mm -hmm. It's only a few chapters from paradise to the flood Mm -hmm. where God says, enough. And he wipes out everyone except for one family. But we know that even then it doesn't stop. Even after that, sin continues in the hearts of men, in the hearts of women. And so, starting in Genesis 12, the scene shifts from worldwide to focusing on one family, the family of Abraham. And as we'll see in a moment, that family is like any other family, isn't it? They're not perfect, they're not holy. By any means. And yet, that's the family that God has chosen. And so it begins there with Abraham. And as we go through and we go through and we follow this family, I want us to point out how Genesis ends. Chapter 50 and verse 26. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Abraham's dead. Isaac is dead. Jacob is dead. Joseph is dead. Everyone's dead. And that's depressing. What started off beautiful and wonderful and very good through the sin of mankind ends with everyone being dead. Wasn't supposed to happen. That wasn't. It was part of God's plan. He made, of course, provision for it, and it's part of His providence that it did happen. But it happens because of why? We disobeyed Him. We brought sin into the world. It didn't have to be. And yet, here it is. It starts off beautiful and it ends with death. But. I've left out part of the story, haven't I? What else do we find in Genesis? Promises, yes? Very important promises. It starts, in fact, in chapter 3, we know. 3.15, where God promises and says that the seed of the woman will do what? Crush the head of the serpent. And from there on, the expectation is built in. And in fact, we can see it with Eve. She gives birth to Cain. She thinks this is the one. And she has another son. She thinks, well, maybe this is the one. And then the one kills the other. Cain kills Abel. And she goes, well, no, those weren't the ones. And then what happens? Seth comes along. And the promise remains. And the hope is still there. Mm -hmm. And the hope we can follow it as it's traced through from Genesis 3, from Adam to Seth to Noah to Shem. And finally, when we get to chapter 12, to Abraham. And God begins at that point to flesh this out for us, does he not? And in chapter 12 of Genesis, we read there, God promises Abraham what? I'll make of you a mighty nation, And then the keys, he says, in your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Of course, we know that the Apostle Paul later elaborates on that in Galatians, does he not? And he says, it's not the nation that he's talking about. It's singular, the seed, the promises of Christ, who will come through this line of Abraham. That's what the promise is looking forward to. And so the promise remains in spite of the flood, in spite of all the terribleness that comes through after the fall. The promise is still there. It's made initially in chapter 12, then in Genesis 15, God ratifies it. And Genesis 15, we'll see, is extremely important. Because God ratifies it. He comes once again to Abraham and he reminds him of the promise. And then what does he do? He binds himself remember Genesis 15 God has Abraham take the animals and cut their carcasses in half and Abraham does what he falls asleep he keeps the birds and the things away for a while and then eventually he falls asleep and once he falls asleep what happens God shows up and God passes between the pieces himself and it's very important that we know Abraham doesn't pass between the pieces no no this is not like the covenant that will come later Where the people are sprinkled with blood and say, all this we will do. This is the covenant where God passes between the pieces and God says, all this I will do. Mm -hmm. It's not dependent at all on Abraham. Mm -hmm. He's sleeping. That's what he's doing. It's God binding himself. Swearing by himself. To accomplish what he's already promised way back in Genesis 3. And now he's bound in this covenant. And what a wonderful thing that God has bound himself on our behalf, even though none of us deserved it. He's bound himself to accomplish everything that he said he would accomplish. And then we read on through Genesis, and as I said, the promise remains. But at the end of the book, we know it's largely unfulfilled. We're told, in Genesis and here in Exodus 1, 1, there are 70 people who go down to Egypt with Jacob. Seventy. Remember the promise is, your descendants will be like the stars of the heavens and the grains of sand on the seashore. Seventy. So I always say, thank God for Exodus. Because the promise is still there. The promise is largely unfulfilled. And at the end of Genesis we're going, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And so we pick up in Exodus chapter 1 with now or end. I.e. we're continuing the story. It's not over. God is not finished. For he has not accomplished what he has sworn he would accomplish. And so... We read again in verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. I love these lists of names that we get in the scripture. Because as so many commentators point out, and they do it rightly, it is a reminder to us that God knows those who are his. He knows us by name. And he keeps a record of those names. In fact... Revelation 20 and 15 reminds us there is a book. It's the book of life. And it has the names of all those who belong to Jesus Christ. And here we have this list, and it's very interesting if I can geek out for just a minute. You'll notice that the names are not in birth order, they are grouped according to their mothers. First comes Leah. With Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And then comes Rachel with Benjamin. And of course, skip down a little bit and we find Joseph later down the list. After that, Zilpah with Dan and Naphtali. And Bilhah with Gad and Asher. Grouped according to the mothers, they're grouped Uh, essentially according to the order uh, in which they became Jacob's wives. And it's a reminder to us, I think, also of Jacob. Jacob is the one now with whom the promise rests. It's on him. And isn't it a wonderful reminder that it has nothing to do with the goodness of the person (laughs) and everything to do with the goodness of God. Here's Jacob with his four wives and children from four different wives. Here's Jacob, who you'll remember took advantage of his older brother when he came in from the field and he was starving and he said, I'm about to starve to death. Can I have some of your stew? And Jacob said, no. Unless you sell me your birthright. Who does that? Now, I'm not... Saying that Esau is perfect here for selling his birthright. No, no, no. But what brother sees his brother about to famished and about to pass out and he has a bowl of stew and he says, oh, I've got plenty, but you can't have any unless you give me something. In fact, give me everything. And Esau despises his birthright and Jacob takes advantage of his brother. Later on, what does Jacob do? He goes to his father in disguise, as Esau. And he takes his blessing too. And then he's got to run away to a far country for some reason. So again and again, he's betrayed his family. He's been seen in sin. And we could trace his life and find out how true he is to his original name. And we find the same for his children. As we go through just a few examples here. Reuben is first on the list. Genesis 35. You'll recall that Reuben was the eldest. Reuben was the one that the birthright belonged to. Reuben was the one that, speaking in human terms, the promise should have gone to. Of course, God had a different plan. But Reuben loses his birthright. How? By defiling his father's bed. And so Reuben forfeits his birthright. Simeon and Levi, they trick a whole town of men so that they could slaughter them. And they're cursed to be separated. Their tribes are separated because of what they've done. How about Judah? The one who ends up carrying the promise, yes? It's the whole affair with Tamar. Where he goes and he seeks out a prostitute. And Tamar is more righteous than he is in the whole affair. The point is, none of these men are men that we would look to and say, here's where our hope should rest. None of them are men that we look to and say, this one is deserving of the promise. This one is deserving of the Lord Jesus coming and sacrificing himself for them. Because this one is righteous. This one is clear. This one's conscience is clean. None of them fall into that category. And yet, this is the family on whom God's favor rests. It's in spite of who they are. Not because of who they are. In spite of their history. This is God's chosen people. And in fact, we can look at the church today and realize nothing has changed. The church, yes, is still made up of those who deserve wrath. Who deserve judgment. Those of us who are fallen and we've sinned and we still sin and we still fail and we still fall. Again and again and again. And what happens? God's favor rests on us still. Because it's not about us. It's always been about the Lord Jesus. It's been about God's promise to give his son a bride. It's been about the son saying, I will go and I will get her. That's what it's about. His perfection. His accomplishing. What he promised to do in Genesis 15. What he bound himself to do. And not about us. Or our perfection or our deserving of anything. And so here we see these names. And we're told that there were 70 souls in verse 5. For Joseph was there already. And so the promise remains in spite of the generation there. But what do we read in verse 6? And Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation. More death. The promise remains and yet the effects of sin also remain. Yes. And so another generation passes by. And I want us to notice in particular that it Verse 6, the Holy Spirit points out Joseph. Everybody else is looped in, lumped in together, right? All his brethren, and all that generation. So why is the name of Joseph brought to our attention? We've already said, Judah's the one that the promises are not Joseph. So if, if the Holy Spirit's going to point someone out for us, you would think it would be Judah. But no, he points out, Joseph. So we have to ask ourselves and say, why Joseph? And everyone else is lumped together. And I think it is because if we go back to Genesis chapter 50, Genesis chapter 50, and I'll read for us verse 24, or beginning there at verse 24. It says, And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. And God will surely visit you, And bring you out of this land unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died, being an hundred and ten years old. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Notice that Joseph's last words are the promise remains. God's promise to Abraham remains. And he says, I don't want you to leave me here in Egypt because this is not where we belong. And he points us where? He points us to Canaan. And I think that's exactly what Moses is doing here in Exodus. In verse 6, by bringing our intention back to Joseph, he's saying, remember Joseph's last words? The promise remains. Even though Joseph dies, even though his brothers die, even though the whole generation dies, it does not affect the fact that there's still the promise. Mm -hmm. And Joseph died with expectation, full expectation and faith that God would do exactly what God said he would do. And so it shouldn't surprise us then when we get to verse 7, and we see immediately God begins to do exactly what He said He would do. Verse 7, And the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Moses says in several different ways here in verse 7, that Israel became a great people. And I think he says it in so many different ways because the explosion that we see in a short period of time is absolutely amazing. We started with 70 people. And we're told in Numbers 1 and 46 that by the time these people come out of Egypt, there's over 2 million of them. There's over 600,000 fighting men, and then we have to add the women and the children and the older men. And there's over two million, from 70 to two million in this short span of time that they're in Egypt. Think about it. And not that they're down there in Egypt and you know they have the best medical care in the world, and everybody's trying to help them. No. Right? We know what happens. A new pharaoh rises who doesn't know Joseph, and he says, I don't like these people. I think we should enslave these people and also kill all the male children because they're growing too fast. Mm -hmm. And guess what God says? Don't care. (laughs) Right? We just read from the confession about God's providence Mm -hmm. and how anything that happens in the world happens because he says it. Amen. And when he gives a promise, that promise will be fulfilled. That's right. And men can try whatever they want to try to stop him, and he'll just use it to fulfill his promises. Amen. Amen. So I want us to understand that this growth is miraculous growth in the midst of slavery. In the midst of everyone trying to keep Israel down, God grows them from 70 to over 2 million people. God has not forgotten, has he? He made a promise to Abraham. Your descendants will be a mighty nation. They will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. Seventy doesn't fit the bill. And so by the time we see them coming out of Egypt, they are indeed a nation. They're a nation. In fact, They go from being simply known as Jacob's household to the children of Israel, the nation that they will be known as. And it all happens right here. And it's almost amazing that it's so understated here in verse 7. You know, Moses. Tries to write it so many different ways. They're fruitful, they increase abundantly, they multiply, they wax exceeding mighty. And he's trying to paint this picture of how, what an explosion of growth the people saw during this period of time. And it still almost boggles the mind that he can just put this in one verse. What takes, what must have been absolutely amazing. To go from 70 to over 2 million. While you're in the midst of bondage. In the midst of a nation that wants you dead. It would be far, far more likely that there would be none of them left. And yet, Egypt can't stop them. Pharaoh can't stop them. Because Pharaoh can't stop God. God. In God's purposes. and God's plans. Amen. And so we see. That God begins to do. Exactly what he said he was going to do. And he does it in his time. And he does it. At just the right time. Notice here also. It's, it's very interesting the timing of this. Verse 6 tells us that Joseph died. Verse 7 tells us. That the population explosion began. Isn't that amazing? Joseph is who? He's their protector. Joseph is the second most powerful man in Egypt, yes? He's keeping everyone safe. All the rest of them are safe because Joseph is there. Then what happens? Joseph dies. Uh Uh-oh. What about the rest of them? How are they going to be safe? How are they going to be cared for? How are they going to be protected? And exactly at that same time, what? Boom. The population explosion begins. And they grow into a mighty nation so that even Pharaoh is afraid of them. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how God works these things out in just the right time, in just the right measure, to make sure that His plan and His purposes are never thwarted. Amen. And we know the rest of the story too, don't we? And the rest of the story is the best part. Because this nation continued through hardship and through difficulty and through struggle and through sin and through all sorts of history that's just as sordid as the history of any other people in the world. And yet they continued on so that the Messiah could be born through them. And we know that through Him, God has indeed accomplished all that He said He would accomplish. We spoke... Uh, earlier this morning about meeting new brothers and sisters and how we have brothers and sisters all around the world. What did God promise? Your offspring will be a blessing to what? All the nations. Has Jesus been a blessing to all the nations today? Can we say that? Absolutely we can. Does he continue to be a blessing to all the nations? Yes. Because more and more people are being called by God into the faith. And into the truth, day by day by day. I cannot wait to gather around the throne and to look at the vast sea. People from every tribe, language, people, group, nation, down through the centuries that God has saved through His Son. And it all begins right here. With his population explosion of his people. So I'll take a page from Pastor Drew and say, that's our text. Now I want to pull the doctrine from it. And then give us some application from that. Here's the doctrine. It's not complicated. God is faithful to his unconditional covenant. That's it right? Our confidence, as we've seen here, is not in our strength. Our confidence is not in, I am going to do the things that God requires so that God will accept me and no, 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 never go down that path. Our confidence is in Him and in His faithfulness and in His power. As we saw, He is the one who promised that He would bring this about and he cannot lie and he cannot fail and he has done neither and we can look around the world today and see that he has done neither he has been faithful to his covenant all the way through the end even up to the point of sending his son to become a curse for us and the lord jesus willingly took it on himself and did all that he set out to do and on that cross He said those three wonderful words. It is finished. Everything that God purposed, everything that he planned, revolved around his son and rested upon the shoulders of his son and the Lord Jesus took it on himself and accomplished it to the full. God continues in his faithfulness And that's wonderful for us that he is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his covenant because there are more promises, yes, that God continues to fulfill. We are still here in this world. But each one of us knows that the day is coming when our name will be called and it will be time to pass over unless the Lord returns first. And we rely on him That in that day, when we either meet our death or He comes back, we will be with Him for eternity. He's promised it. It's part of the covenant. It's part of what He is doing for His people. And He's fulfilled it up till this point. Every single point of it. And we have every right to expect and to believe and to know that He will continue to fulfill it after this life is over for us. That's right. And he will continue to fulfill it for eternity. Because, again, it rests in him and not in us. Not in what we deserve, but in what the Lord Jesus deserves, which is everything. And we become the inheritors of that with him. So, how do we apply this? One, very simple trust God. Trust Him. He is faithful. And we can trust Him wherever we find ourselves in life. Yes, because as as Pastor Doug alluded to, he's promised what? He's going to work all things to the good of those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. So we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. David says, Fear no evil. How is that possible? Trusting Him. Trust Him. Knowing that even that valley is being used by God for the good of His church, for the good of His people, for the good of us as individuals who belong to Him, who use whatever comes our way for His glory and our benefit. And we can trust Him as we walk through every single aspect of life. Through every different stage of it. He'll be there. And He'll be with us. And He'll be working on our behalf. We can trust God. We can, second point, rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 12 and 2 tells us that He is what? The author and finisher of our faith. We realize and we have to realize if we take any uh, true stock in our lives that even though we try to serve Him and we try to be faithful, we fail so many times. And even when we think we're doing well, we're still doing poorly because our motives aren't right, our mind isn't right, our heart isn't right. The old man is still there and he's still fighting, yes. And so we cannot rest in ourselves. But I also want us to know that we can't... When those times come, yes, we repent. Yes, we go to God. We confess those. We ask for forgiveness. Yes, yes, yes. But also we don't despair. Because that's exactly what Satan would want us to do. Yeah. He would want us to despair and curl up into a fetal position and not do anything anymore. That's right. And not proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. That's right. But we know that we rest in Christ. Christ. In the good times and in the bad times. And it's because we can rest in Him that we continue to go. And even when those bad times come after we've repented of them, after we've gone to Him, we've asked for forgiveness, we can come forward and we can say, that time, that time God has used to bring me to where I am now. God has turned even that to my good. And I continue to rest in the finished work of Christ. And I see even more now the need to rest in the finished work of Christ day after day after day. And so we trust God. We rest in Christ. And lastly, praise God. Amen. Praise God. Think about this gospel. How mind-boggling it is how It goes so far against everything that we as people know and we think about from a human perspective. Right? We think, well, you get what you deserve. And we think, well, we've committed an infinite sin against an infinitely holy God. How could we ever be forgiven? And God says, takes the blood of my own son. How could he ever give that? And yet we find that he did just that. He sent his son. In fact, we can look in the scripture and we realize this was the plan from before he even created. Even before Genesis 1-1, that was the plan. Because he knew we would fall. And he had already planned to redeem. What love! There's no words for this love. That's right. It takes sinners who are doomed to die, and even after that, to hell. And to say, I love you so much, I'll give my own son for you, who is my joy and my delight from the very beginning, who's always been with me and always will be. And he is perfect in every way. And you are sinful in every way. And I will give the perfect for the sinful. And I will give the one that I love more than anything. For you who have rebelled against me. Praise God. God. There's no way we could have ever done enough to save ourselves. There's no way we could have ever gotten out from under the curse of sin and death that we were under. He had to do it. And he did it. He did it. He has done it. And he continues to do it, day after day. Praise him. If you know the truth, if you see the truth of the gospel and you know the Lord Jesus, And you placed your faith in Him. Praise God. Praise God that the way was there. Mm -hmm. Praise God that He opened your eyes to the truth. Praise God that He gave you a new heart. Praise God that He removed the veil from your eyes. Praise God that He showed you in your mind. Mm -hmm. He did all of it. And He continues to hold you even now. Because if it were up to us, if He said, I'll bring you in and then it's up to you to get there. We're doomed again. yeah. Because we fail. He didn't leave any of it to us. As Jonathan Edwards says, and it's one of my favorite quotes, says, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is what? The sin that made it necessary. Mm. That's it. All the rest is God. Praise Him. Thank Him. Love Him. Because everything that we are Everything that we look forward to, every truth, every promise, everything that we have is because of Him and what He's done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do once again thank You for Your Word this morning. And we thank You for... um, We thank You for Jesus. Yes, indeed. We thank You that You loved us enough to send Your Son we were rebels against You. We did not deserve salvation. We deserved exactly the opposite. And Yet in Your grace and Your mercy and Your love, You had compassion on us. And You sent Him. And He willingly came and became exactly what we needed, the Savior that we needed. And so we thank you, and we praise you that you sent him, and we do pray that you would help us to always keep that that wonderful news of the gospel in, in the forefront of our minds and our hearts and our lives. Never let it, in our dullness of heart and dullness of mind, never let the gospel grow dull for us. Keep the wonder of it there for us so that we can see through that gospel your glory your grace your mercy your love and so that we can rest more and more in you and in your son and then help us to proclaim the truth of that gospel wherever we go with whomever we meet who doesn't know you and doesn't know your son. We pray that you would give us boldness to speak that truth to them. And we pray for them and for all those who have not heard the gospel. We pray that they would hear and not just hear, but that you would open their hearts as you've opened ours. That you would open their minds as you've opened ours, Lord. You know who they are who are yours. And we know that you will do your work And that not one whose name is written in the book of life will be forgotten or left behind. For you will save them all. And we pray that you would continue in that work. And we know that you will. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for who Jesus is. And we thank you that we belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.